0: This thing on. Hey. This thing on. So we're gonna start this one off with a quick little little news story, being that it's the first of the year, beginning of the year. Um, and it's <laughs> it's Florida. So anyway, this takes place in Florida. And in Florida things never change. So this bozo couple had a problem there in the process of burglarizing a home when they realized they hit the jackpot. In fact, they had so much stuff, there was no way they can move it out of the house by themselves. So what do you do? They called 911 for help, of course. She called 911 to ask for assistance. And while she was asking, she also said they needed a ride to the airport for a weekend getaway that they had planned in New York. Uh, When the cops arrived, they were still in the house organizing their stuff and uh, they got a ride directly to jail. So go to jail. Do not collect $200. Anyway, that comes from um, Dave Moreland's Bozo Criminal of the Day. I thought that was a funny story. Welcome to the show, welcome to We All Go A Little Mad Sometimes with your host Poncho where I have a face for a podcast and a passion for true crime. So on uh, this this week's show, today's show, uh, we're going to continue on with uh, Second Chances and uh, just a unbelievable story from Minnesota on that one. And we're also going to continue with uh, Tomb Raiders and Tomb Raiders is... Um, It'd be a little bit different, I guess, because they uh, these these guys were—I call these guys the impatient resurrectionists. So uh, anyway, that's uh, that's what's happening on the show. So let's go get them. So on this episode of Tomb Raiders, it takes us to Edinburgh, Scotland, November 1827. Dr. Robert Knox seemed to have a tough time finding enough cadavers for his anatomy class. It's hard to teach anatomy class when you have no anatomy. But tonight Dr. Knox was lucky. Two fellows brought in a relatively fresh cadaver. The cadaver was poor old Donald, and Donald had uh, died of dropsy in the room and house of Margaret Hare that she ran with her often quarrelsome husband, William. William and his pal, William Burke, were the uh, enforcers and rent collectors of this room and house. Donald still owed rent, and uh, William Harris kind of pissed off about it. He said, the son of a bitch went and died on me before he paid my rent. The boys got a bright idea to uh, sell Donald's body, and uh, they went looking around in Surgeon Square and uh, found a student, and the student pointed him in the direction of Dr. Knox. Doctor, I didn't see a thing, Knox asked no questions and gladly gave the friends a seven pound ten for the cadaver. So at the time, Edinburgh was on the cutting edge of anatomical studies and was in short supply of cadavers. And Scottish law required that uh, corpses used for medical research should come from those who had either died in prison, committed suicide or from orphans. It led to a increase in uh, resurrectionist activities. What are resurrectionists? You say? Well, let's ask Mister Peterson. Hey, boys and girls, this is Rupert Peterson with the word of the day, today's word is Resurrectionist. Can you say that? I like the way you say that. A Resurrectionist is somebody that steals smelly corpses from grapes and sells them to creepy scientists for dissection. A body snatcher. Thank you mr peterson we appreciate that so the seven pound ten the boys received was almost twice what don the cadaver owed the boarding house um hare took 4.5 and burke took the balance and uh good old dr knox told them, if you have any more cadavers we sure could use them so burke and hare continued with their regular work they were digging a canal i believe and uh, and working as enforcers at the room and house. But back at the lodge, it's, um, their, their room and house or lodge was, was in uh, Tanner's Close, a section of Edinburgh. It's now February 1828, and a lodger named Joseph had developed a fever and had become delirious. Well, William Hare and Mrs. Hare became concerned that Joseph had possibly become infectious and uh, he was bad for business. So the Williams fed uh, Joseph some whiskey and got him good and intoxicated and uh, Burke laid on the man's chest and hair covered his mouth and nose and suffocated Joseph. A process of murder virtually undetectable in uh, 1828 and had become known as burking when you burk somebody so the boys took uh, joseph to dr i didn't see a thing knocks he gladly accepted the cadaver and paid a whopping 10 pounds for the cadaver which is equal to 360 dollars in u.s today's u.s money Burke and Hare had stumbled on upon a good business opportunity the pair had committed 14 more murders including the murder of a local young mentally and physically handicapped man known as daft jamie well everybody in the town loved daft jamie so he was recognized by some of the students dr knox denied he was anybody that they knew when uh, word on the street got started that uh, jamie was missing dr knox removed the uh, cadaver's head and hands before the class dissection. So no one would uh, recognize who it is laying there on the table. So the boy's last murder happened on October 31st, 1828. Just so happened it happened to be Halloween. Although I doubt the kids were trick-or-treating back in 1828. Burke led a middle-aged Irish woman back to the Brogan house. It was a place where he and his wife sometimes stayed Burke and his wife had started drinking with the woman and uh, they were getting loud and obnoxious and carrying on and there was two other lodgers in the broken house and uh, they were getting pretty annoyed with uh, all the carrying on in the next room so uh, Burke told the couple that hey you know this is my mother she's in town and I'll pay you to go uh, someplace else for the night and so he paid off the couple to go to um, Hare's uh, lodging house. So they went and stayed there for the night. So when, so Burke and his wife, having the lady sufficiently intoxicated, uh, Burke sent for Hare. Hare came back to the Bergen house and they committed their dirty deed on the Irish woman and uh, left her under some straw in the bedroom. The next morning, the couple who were there the night before had come back because they left some clothes at the Bergen house, and they had found a dead body in the bedroom underneath the straw. The couple went to the police with their findings. Later that morning, the two Williams took the lady to Dr. Knox. Meanwhile, the police had come back and searched the room and found evidence that something bad had happened the night before. So they, uh, the police went and, and, and found the couple that had made the claim and took them to uh, Dr. Knox's dissection room early the next morning and they were able to ID the lady from the lodge. Hare and his wife were uh, both arrested that day and Burke was apprehended later. Uh, Hare turned King's evidence and was granted immunity. While in custody, Burke told police that um, during this whole ordeal that he had uh, he couldn't sleep at night had trouble sleeping without uh, he had to have some heavy drinking opium use in order just to sleep at night but uh, Burke was uh, subsequently hung and his uh, corpse was dissected and the skeleton is on display at the anatomical museum in Edinburgh Medical School which is still on display apparently and um Hare disappeared after the trial and was never heard from again. The good doctor, I didn't see a thing. Knox was uh, in turn removed from anatomy school in 1847. The Royal College of uh, Surgeons of Edinburgh found him guilty of falsifying uh, students' attendance records and refused to accept um, any further certificates from him, effectively um, banning him from teaching in Scotland. In the same year, he was expelled from the uh, Royal Society of Edinburgh, and he left Scotland for London. Because of these happenings, the, um, the Anatomy Act of 1832 is enacted, making cadavers of actual dead people uh, more available and with uh, certifications of these bodies. And also they developed a mort-safe which was developed essentially is a steel cage that sits down on top of the grave to uh, keep the resurrectionist honest. So yeah, that's the second installment of uh, the Tomb Raider series. Although these guys weren't Tomb Raiders, and they weren't resurrectionists, they were essentially serial killers portraying themselves as resurrectionists. Uh, so yeah, that's the story of Burke and Hare, the impatient resurrectionists. So uh, let's fit in a little commercial break, huh? Hey, ladies and gentlemen, having trouble finding them quality support auto accessories? Well, here at the Schwenkter Brothers Auto Supply and Cowboy Hat Emporium. We have all of your car care needs. We have blinker fluid, headlight oil, turning juice, muffler bearings, and those hard-to-find cross-drilled brake lines. On special this week and this week only, we have flux capacitors and 24-ounce cans of badass base air. So you can find the Shrinker Brothers on the interwebs, or come visit us in person on Highway 149 in downtown Buzzard's Gut, North Carolina, or give us a call, eight six seven five. Three zero nine. Okay, we're going to move on to the second chances segment of the show. Which I believe everybody deserves a second chance. This guy, however, he had a second chance, third chance, fourth chance, and a fifth chance, and each time it got progressively worse. So let's get on with this story. This this week on uh, this week's episode is going to take place in um, Moose Lake, Minnesota. So on May 26th, 1999, 19-year-old Katie Poyer. Went missing from um, the Conoco convenience store in Moose Lake, Minnesota, where she worked as a night clerk. A passerby, who noticed that there was no attendant present at the store, he saw there was people had left money on the counter and notes and things like that, but there wasn't anybody working in the store, and thought that seemed mighty mighty off to him. So he he went ahead and called the police. When the police showed up. They, uh, they searched all around for Katie. I don't know if they called the manager or her parents or whatever, but they couldn't find her anywhere. And so everybody went to looking for the, it seemed like the whole town came out to look for people came out in their pajamas looking for. They couldn't find her when they looked at the, uh, the video from inside the store, they could see that it looked like a man had abducted Katie and walked right out of the store with her. But the, uh, it was a black and white video and it was grainy. It was really hard to see. So the next morning, there was a girl that worked next door the Subway sandwich shop. Said she had noticed a man in the parking lot who had been looking at all the girls coming in and out of the store and didn't like the way he was looking at you. He was being creepy, what it amounted to. And uh, so she had jotted down his license plates best he, she could remember. Had had... Um, three numbers and the last letter of the license plate and told them it was a black pickup truck and gave that information to the police. So with the information they had, things weren't looking good. And they um, expanded the search area. There was hundreds or hundreds of people were searching for her. And in the meantime, the police got a hold of the video and sent uh, it to uh, NASA, and uh, Dr. David Hathaway had a process for cleaning up videos that NASA had taken of Mars and, you know, space photos that they wanted to cleaned up. He went to work on it and cleaned the video up where he could see that it was a a man with kind of longish blonde hair and was wearing a New York Yankees jersey. And he had a hat on. He had his hat on backwards. He gave that information back to the police. Now, the video wasn't real clear, but it was clear enough that they had something to work with between... The video and the witnesses that had seen this truck around town, they made a uh, composite sketch of the guy and the, the police. They, they put out a um, composite sketch on a guy saying he's about five ten, weighed 170 pounds, had um, long, light-colored hair, appeared to be about 25 years old. The witnesses said they seen, you know, he was in a black pickup truck around the convenience store that night. So they had, they had a pretty good starting point from here. So at this time, the tips were rolling in pretty good. Hundreds of people arrived from around the state to assist in the search. Police used tracking dogs and helicopters, but found nothing. Posters of Katie's image were posted in newspapers and billboards. And it was turning into a high-profile missing person case, but um, still nothing. Among the uh, truck drivers driving this style of truck, they they found uh, one guy, Donald Blom, who had a registered truck with the license plate numbers just about matching what was offered by the witness, but the truck in his driveway was white. It wasn't black. They were looking for a black pickup truck. And his wife, Amy, said that they had gotten rid of that truck a while back and they didn't have the truck anymore. So um, on June 6th, so this all, um, this actually, this all started in May 26th. So by June 6th, a couple weeks into it, after searching a 5 to 10 mile radius and the, the official search concluded but many many volunteers continued they set up booths at the state fair and they believed that somewhere someone somewhere had seen something. They just had to make the right connection to bring the girl home um, this guy was either bold or stupid or taking a girl out of a store that was equipped with um, surveillance cameras and the investigators believed he probably made, made other mistakes as well So they had to keep digging and scratching to find something. They know that this guy in the convenience store seemed to be a sports fan because he was wearing a Yankees jersey. Police asked Minnesota Twins baseball uh, star Paul Molitor to make a public service announcement. And his appeal to Minnesotans across the state got the attention of Daryl Brown, who worked at the Minnesota Veterans Home. And uh, he began thinking. So on June 18th, he called the tip line, and um, he was tip number 1960. And he reported uh, to the uh, tip line that his coworker Donald Hutchinson, who had recently stopped driving his black pickup truck and who resembled the composite sketch, had been absent the day after, you know, the day following the abduction, and had recently cut his hair short and shortly after that he had suddenly quit his job there as a janitor without giving any notice Hutchinson um was investigated he was actually Donald Blom who they checked on earlier so the police looked in that his Donald Blom guy had to see what he was all about it was pretty disturbing when they did the when they when they did the research on him this he was a bad guy from the from back when he was a teenager he was 13 years old started drinking and It turned into an underage drinker and a problem child. In the 10th grade, he went to reform school, where he often skipped classes. In 1975, Blom kidnapped a a 14-year-old girl, gagged, and raped her. So this is 1970. This guy was born in uh, 1949, so he he was 26 years old, kidnapped a 14-year-old girl, gagged her, and raped her. That should have been the end of the line for this guy right there. He shouldn't. Anyway, he locked her up in his uh, car trunk, but um, she managed to escape and turned him in. And he went to trial and was convicted. And three years later, he was out and committed aggravated assault again. In 1983, he was uh, arrested again for criminal sexual conduct. That same year, he also threatened two teenage girls at knife point in a remote area. He tied them to a tree and put socks in their mouth. He told them he was going to rape them. Anyway, the girls ended up getting rescued. They had their car parked the wrong way on the road. And when the police officer stopped to check out what was going on, uh, Blom fled into the woods. So there you go. So you folks that um, complain about police being nosy probably saved those two girls' lives. So sometimes it pays for the cops to be nosy. So Blom, he changed his appearance by dyeing his hair, but he was arrested anyway and uh, one of the girls recognized him and he pleaded guilty to the crime. So, during an examination in 1992, a psychologist predicted that if Blom was not closely monitored, he would probably engage in antisocial behavior. However, Blom managed to change his name and get a job and he got married, and by May in 1999, he had six felony convictions, five of which involved kidnapping and sexual assault. So, this was a perfect storm of sorts. This guy had no business being out on the streets. Well, I mean, what happened to the three strikes, you're out thing? He had no business being out. And my opinion, I'm a dad, but my opinion is that a 19-year-old girl should not have been working in that store by herself that late at night. I mean, when she was taken out of the store to video um, camera said it was 1138, just my opinion. So what he was doing was he was committing crimes and covering them all up. And when he married his wife, Amy, he took her last name, which flattered her to death. And he got married and had kids and they lived in a house in Richfield, Minnesota. But he was beating the crap out of his wife and she was scared to death of him. Um, Friends and family and their kids would say that his mom had black eyes and bruises all over She would do pretty much anything that this guy asked her to do. And that's what happened with the pickup truck. She lied about that too. So anyway, the agents from the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension went looking for Blom. And they they eventually, he was arrested in the afternoon of June 22nd as he was driving home from a trip that he had taken uh, with his family. See, Blom had a piece of property uh, about 12 miles from Moose Lake, which he purchased about uh, two years prior to the abduction and he was there all the time working around the yard and cleaning it up and uh, fishing at the lake. And um, after the abduction, he, he disappeared. He didn't come anywhere near the place. But uh, Blom, was, um, he was held on. He had, he had weapons. He wasn't supposed to have any weapons, but he had weapons. So they held him on a weapons charge and didn't charge him with murder right away. But they searched his residence at the lake. Over, I think it was over 100 members of the National Guard and several hundred volunteers participated and they went even miles beyond his property into the woods. And by the, on that first day, and had to, late in the evening, they had to call it quits. And the next morning, the search was resumed. They noticed the fire pit and on Blom's property. And searchers found fragments of what appeared to be bone in the fireplace and these went to a lab for further testing where they were positively identified as bone, frag- bone fragments and possibly a tooth the tooth was sent to an odontologist the expert in um, dental remains and uh, they compared the tooth sample or the tooth that they would found in the fire pit to uh, katie's dental records they found that it was very similar to, to tooth number 18 on her dental chart And that tooth had a filling in it, and the tooth they found in the fire pit looked like it had a filling in it. It was sent to a lab where the lab tested it um, to see what was inside the tooth. They didn't have any DNA on the bones or the the tooth fragment. Uh, In testing this tooth, it came back, it was very unusual for a filling in a tooth. It was zirconium silicone filling, which um, it was very unusual. So they contacted her dentist, and her dentist said that uh, the work that she had done on it, she used a product called uh, X, which was not even, it was so limited, it wasn't even on the market yet. She was, they gave it to her to try and she was trying it on uh, Katie's tooth. That pretty much sealed the deal that they knew that the fragments, the bone fragments in the tooth that they had found were Katie's. So the police had a, a forensic anthropologist test the bones uh, she came back and said that the bones were from a female aged 18 to 24. So with the evidence they had, the police charged him with, uh, kidnapping and, uh, the possession of a firearm, which was a federal charge given his prior convictions. He later on made a, uh, confession, which he confessed, uh, to the crime. Of course, his confession was quite a bit different than what was shown on the video. And then he later turned around and came back and um, recanted his confession. He said he made false claims that he was coerced and that uh, he was in solitary confinement for all this amount of time and it messed with his head and blah, 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 which a bunch of crap. And said, on top of that, he said, I never even had a Yankees jersey. Well, his own brother testified saying that he had given uh, Blom a, a box of uh, clothing that had that very same Yankees jersey in it. So this guy went on trial um, in around June of 2000. It took like five weeks to select a jury and the trial proper took an additional five weeks with over 50 witnesses called to testify including several key witnesses. Um, Some of the people he had assaulted in the past as well as his own brother testified against him about the shirt. His uh, barber came and testified that his hair it was long, and he, the barber, had dyed a blonde, and so after the uh, closing statements were made during the, the trial, so the jury spent about ten hours in deliberations, three of which they spent listening to the uh, confession tapes again. And all in all, the detectives had followed thirty-five hundred leads and spent over two hundred thousand dollars on the case um, before its uh, successful conclusion. He was given a life without parole, and, of course, he continues on and on that he's innocent and he'll be exonerated and blah, blah, blah. Well, they sent him to uh, Waynesboro, Pennsylvania to serve. So Bloom appealed his conviction, of course, on grounds that his attorney was ineffective and this, that, and other thing. And um, his wife had sent a letter to Minnesota legislators that um, I guess she was afraid he was going to get out. She's uh, no longer frightened of what he might do to her. She sent a letter uh, stating that um, Donald Bloom had abused her for years, and, and she believed that he had murdered uh, Katie Poyer. And she admitted that due to the state of mind at the time of the trial she had been under, that she was unable to tell the truth, and she had falsely stated that he'd been home with her that night. And um, But now she was uh, ready to recant that testimony. And she was no longer married to him and no longer under his domination. And now she could tell the truth. She claimed that she endured punching, kicking, and all this stuff for seven years. And she felt guilty that she allowed that and ashamed, but felt helpless to do anything but uh, endure living with him. And she also admitted that after the authorities discovered the human bone fragments in the fire pit, she had asked Blom about them, and uh, he turned to her with... uh, You're not that effing stupid, are you? And that had been an incriminating statement as far as she was concerned, but she had desperately wanted to believe that he was innocent. And now she believed that her husband had committed other crimes, including murder. And the authorities did too. And, um, you know, this guy led Katie easily from the store, as like he was used to doing it. And they suspected he might be a serial killer. There's probably more to this guy than meets the eye. Um, Investigators believe that Blom had been involved in a series of murders, probably dating back into the 70s. A Minnesota Bureau of Crime Apprehension agent had uh, suspected Blom was a serial killer for a long time. According to him, Blom had admitted that uh, he often would leave for entire nights and he'd be using alcohol and drugs and would not remember when he came home the next day where he'd been or what he had done. At the time of his arrest, investigators were looking into similar crimes, including the murder of 19-year-old Wisconsin student, Holly Spangler. In 1993, Holly's decomposing body was found in the woods of a uh, Bloomington, Minnesota Park. Uh, Blom was living in the area under the name Donald Prince and was a registered sex offender at the time. Um, he was one of the top suspects in the case. Another case study by the investigators. Uh, was the strangulation of Wilma Johnson whose body was found near the St. Paul Cathedral in 1983 and Blom admitted to being at the crime scene but uh, denied killing her. And Blom told investigators he might have killed a man near the um, uh, St. Paul High Bridge even though no body was ever found. So yeah, this was a a bad guy and this bad guy should have, I think he should have remained in jail a long time ago poor Katie and her family, they didn't deserve this. One of the good things that came out of it was Katie's law where um, they essentially gave uh, rural police departments more funding for computers and uh, things of that nature. Um, Because, you know, a lot of this investigation on Katie's case was done by paperwork. It wasn't done on a computer. That funding and tying them into uh, the databases that, um, you know, the big police departments have. So... I don't know that that would have helped in this situation, but it may help in another one, so, you know, it's always a plus. So, yeah, that's the story of Donald Blum. First chance, second chance, third chance, fourth chance, fifth chance, escalate, escalate, escalate. This should have never happened, folks. So, let's do a little palate cleanser after uh, we get the bad taste out of our mouth after that last story. But that is a happy story, and it comes to us from uh, Ocracoke, North Carolina. Which Ocracoke's just the it's a little island off the coast of North Carolina. It's a pretty little place. It um, used to be a stomping grounds of Blackbeard back in the pirate days. But anyway, the message in the bottle was dropped into the ocean by North Carolina um, High School graduate in 2020, and it was found on the beach in Portugal more than two years later. Charles Temple, an uh, English teacher at the Oka Kroka school in Hyde County said that, um, he made it a tradition for the past five years to take the school's tiny graduating class for a summer boat trip and have them toss messages and bottles into the Gulf stream, which is, I don't know, 25 or 30 miles, 50 miles off the coast of North Carolina. I'm not sure in that location, but it's, it's just off the coast. Um, the messages consisted of, um, handwritten notes on the seniors uh, graduation programs temple said he had never received um, any word of any of the bottles ever being found until elena brenton tagged the school on a facebook post in a post saying that she had found a message in a bottle on the beach in settable portugal i guess i'm saying that right i'm sorry if i'm not uh, it was more than 3,600 miles away uh, Breton included a photo of the graduation program, which featured uh, pictures of the eight students in the uh, 2020 graduating class. And a note saying it had entered the ocean on uh, July 26, 2020. How cool is this, Ocracoke, the school wrote in uh, Sharon News on a Facebook post. Temple said the discovered bottle belonged to graduate Alan Dozier whose father, Ernest Dozier, captains the charter boat he uses for his yearly trips with the seniors. The teacher said uh, Alan Dozier most likely does not know yet that the bottle was found because he's currently working on a fishing boat in the Bahamas. That's a pretty cool story. So being that we're in the ocean, we'll talk about this one says, so new re- new revelations from the fossil record show that somewhere between 40 and 55 million years ago, uh, saber tooth anchovies swam the ocean, hunting with a mouthful of spiky bottom teeth and one massive curved protruding fang from the upper jaw. It's a Gary Busey fish. These predator uh, fish were up to a meter long. A meter is um, 3.2808. Three, 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 three feet. I believe they—they're um, <laughs> they're probably too big to fit on a pizza. But the find, findings published in the uh, Royal Society in May: uh, scientists used CT scanners to examine fossil samples collected in Belgium and Pakistan in the last century. Though the saber-toothed anchovy went extinct, the newly identified species shares a number of features. With the plankton-feeding fish we know today, uh, the scientists' literature doesn't determine whether the saber-tooth anchovy would be as polarizing an ingredient on pizza. Let's do one more here. We'll, um, I think this would be important for those world travelers, especially those going to Cambodia. The Cambodian government had to uh, beg people to stop picking the ultra-rare Nepenthes, Bocarensis, it's a pitcher plant and um endemic to cambodia it's a (laughs) it's colloquially known as the penis plant or alarmingly the penis flytrap they are critically endangered so in the southeast united states we have the venus flytrap which is also critically endangered but the uh, penis flytrap um they're uh, they're critically endangered and they also apparently make nice bouquets these uh phallic blooms are so popular for tourists selfies in fact the uh, cambodian ministry of environment published a plea on facebook asking people to stop picking the plant for photos what they're doing is wrong and please don't do it again in the future post read and uh, thank you for loving nature and the resources but please don't harvest uh the plant so it goes to waste. Which, I mean, that makes perfect good sense to me. Inbocorensis lives in uh, low-nutrient soil and relies heavily on its pitcher to draw in prey, which it drowns with its digestive fluids, giving the plant and the nutrients it needs to survive uh tourists who pluck the pictures inadvertently weaken the plant which um which has already suffered damage to its natural habitat due to uh private construction farming and tourism so if um people are interested even in a in a funny way to pose or make selfies with the plants that's fine just don't pick the pictures because they weaken the plant and uh the plant needs those pictures to to live so if you're going to cambodia just remember Um, take all the selfies you want just quit tugging on the pitcher plant so yeah that's the show I hope you all enjoyed it Uh, thanks for listening Uh, come back and visit us again next week and I hope you all have a good week and uh, you dads out there just remember hit pause on the game for 15 minutes and go read to your kids it'll mean the world to them thank you all